It's Monday, February 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Texas is still trying to recover from a winter storm that left millions without power for days. The efforts are now focused on getting people food and water, while President Joe Biden has declared a major disaster there, freeing up more federal funding to help out. At the same time, Senator Ted Cruz is still trying to smooth over a PR disaster from his trip to Cancun. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us to break it all down. Next, the pace of vaccinations in the U.S. is starting to pick up, but many distribution sites are still recovering from an initial botched rollout. Many local health departments and hospitals were in the dark about how many doses they were getting and when they would be delivered. Officials also overestimated how many doses to set aside for nursing homes. Sarah Krause, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for vaccine distribution problems. Finally, the pandemic has forced one of the fastest and most sweeping shifts in human behavior in modern history. At one point, almost half the population was spending more than 18 hours a day in their homes with their families. According to the data of how families were spending their time, television won big time. People also devoted more time to working and taking care of their children. Andrew Van Dam, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for how we all spend our time. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I am supporting well checks right now because we really don't know this is a big city and we've been without power. We don't know who is still in their home and possibly who didn't make it. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Texas is still trying to recover from the winter storm that took out its power grid. It left millions of people without power. You know, a lot of that power has been restored now, but the focus now is getting people food and water. There's a bunch of counties that have orders to boil their water before they can use it. Um, it's still kind of a mess out there. And, and this is also, you know, one of the first tests for President Biden and how he handles a crisis. He declared a major disaster for many of the counties there. And, and you know, that helps with federal funding uh, being available to these hard hit communities and all that. Um, so, so what are we seeing uh, there in Texas? Texas is still in a really tough spot, my native land. So I still have a lot of family that live there and they're really struggling. The power's come back on in a lot of places, but a lot of places still don't have water. They're still having to boil their water or obtain it from elsewhere. And you're right, this is a real test of the Biden administration. FEMA, an organization that has been tasked with handling these sort of things, has also under Biden been tasked with handling the pandemic. So they're stretched very thin. But we saw him, as you said, declare a natural disaster, give this declaration. They sent generators to hospitals and shelters. They've sent water. I think we're going to watch this unfold. And I think, you know, any politician who is worried about being blamed for how Texas has responded was really grateful for Ted Cruz this week, uh, (laughs) who sort of uh, took all of the distractions away and made everyone who wanted to blame a politician sort of focus their attention on him. Yeah, and that's the other, you know, wrinkle in this whole story. While Texans are trying to recover from all of this, you have Ted Cruz trying to get away to Cancun. And then, you know, the thing that really makes it bad for all politicians is when you start lying a little bit and he said, oh, it was for my daughters. I was only going to go for one day. It ended up looking like he was going to stay throughout the weekend, at least. And, you know, all that stuff comes back. Now he comes back and he posts a you know, pictures of him like loading uh, bottles of water into a car, you know, showing that he's part of the effort and everything. And people just say, what a way to fake compassion now. So uh, a big PR disaster on his hands. 
it's been a complete PR disaster on his hands. I mean, leaving your state in a, in a disaster when you're a statewide elected official is never a good idea. Leaving to go to Cancun in a pandemic, probably an even worse idea. And then trying to just post a few pictures to make it go away, uh, not going to solve the problem. He'll be answering questions about this for a while, even if it doesn't affect his political fortunes. I mean, he doesn't stand for re-election for another four years. He's probably going to run for president again. I think most people who are inclined to support him will not be bothered by this by then, but still has been just a really terrible episode for him. It's a tough call. You know, if you have the means and you could get away to somewhere a lot warmer, I'm willing to bet Almost everybody would do that. But, you know, when you look to the leadership of your state to help constituents get through this type of stuff, it just looks really bad. Last week, also, Democrats unveiled an immigration bill. It looked very similar to what Joe Biden had proposed in his first days in office, pathway to citizenship or uh, in about eight years, among other things. But once again, this one looks like it's going to be long odds that this will get passed. Very unlikely that this bill ever becomes law, at least in the form that it is in right now. There's always a possibility that some type of compromise bill could get passed. But right now, we just don't see signs that Congress is looking to do big things, bipartisanship. Um, I, you know, they're going to pass this COVID bill with only Democratic votes, maybe one or two Republicans jump on board. But that seems very unlikely at this point. So just not there yet. And and this type of legislation, it's very much a liberal wish list. It's not going to get any Republican support um, and getting it done without Republican support is likely to be impossible. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting. And we've talked about this before, kind of the contrast from the way President Trump handled things. But how much political capital will Joe Biden put into this effort? Yeah, that's a great question. He's put very little at this point. Uh, you know, this is really just a piece of legislation to make his base happy. And we haven't seen any signs so far uh, that it was anything beyond that. But I, I do think that we're going to see the talks. They're going to see them pointing to it. And once they get past COVID relief in the next few weeks, uh, maybe then some type of talks to see if they can find some type of compromise. Looking ahead to this week, Judge Merrick Garland is going to be, have his confirmation hearing to be the next attorney general. Uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. He said he's going to fight domestic extremism and terrorism and, you know, just kind of has his work cut out for him there at the Justice Department after what we had the last uh, uh, four years under Trump and, and even Bill Barr. That's right. You know, the last four years, Democrats have been very critical of the Trump Justice Department for being too political. President Biden has said that he wants no politics to play a role in his current administration. The questions that are going to come from both Republicans and Democrats likely to be very tough, but also likely to be hitting on a number of problems that the nation faces, like the opioid epidemic or, as you mentioned, the January 6th attack on the Capitol, as well as sort of what happens to Trump and what happens to his family and what happens to investigations that have been launched into him. I think it's going to be a real interesting confirmation battle to be watching. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Failed to mobilize the effort to administer the shots. Failed to set up vaccine centers. That changed the moment we took office. Joining us now is Sarah Krause, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Vaccines in the U.S. are starting to ramp up, but really overall, it's, it's been a botched rollout. There's just been problems all over the place, everywhere from 
limited vaccine doses that were available, miscommunications with states, misallocated supplies. We're even seeing um, the appointment websites have been a mess for a lot of people trying to get their appointments to get their vaccinations. It's been a tough go, but these were always going to be major problems, the largest vaccination effort really that the country has ever undergone. So Sarah, you wrote an article talking about kind of all the problems that we saw throughout this. Uh, Help us walk through some of this. So the story looks at the really rocky initial days of this rollout and some of the reasons why early on there were sort of tens of millions of doses that had not yet made their way into arms and why that was. And so there were a number of different reasons. One is this sort of fragmented chain of communication from the federal government down through the states to the sites that are actually giving doses and a lack of transparency at the local site level of what supply they can expect when they should start scheduling appointments and when they will have those doses in hand to get those shots in arms. Another was overestimating by the federal government how many elderly people in skilled nursing or long-term care facilities would need or want doses. Now, the goal of that was to ensure that they did not get themselves in a position where they didn't have enough. But in the end, they overestimated how many uh, both residents and staff would take the vaccine. And that meant that many states are now reallocating, in some cases, tens of thousands of doses that were sort of set aside for that population to other priority groups. And all of that takes time. A lot of states are saying they don't have access to the government database that says when they're going to be getting the doses and how many. We know that's been a problem. We've seen mass vaccination sites like Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles have to close down because they didn't have enough vaccines. And then the reporting back also, you know, sticking with California, there was one uh, clinic, a family center that was reporting the doses, but it wasn't getting uploaded properly. So when it came time to see how many they had administered, It said they only had administered 700 vaccinations when really they had done 10,000 doses. Problem number one was the transparency. You know, there is a federal system called Tiberius that the federal government uses to communicate with states and let them know what their allocations are and, and where those doses are along their path there. It's then up to states in many cases to communicate with hospitals and local sites as to what they can expect of the state's allocation. So what we found was many of the local administrators or the people that were ultimately going to be bringing nurses on site to give doses were waiting until they had those shots in hand because they didn't want to find themselves in a position where they were canceling appointments last minute. So they waited till they got the doses, then they opened up appointments, then they had the appointments. But what that means is that there's many days in between where those doses are just sitting around. Equally on the reporting side, you get these data lags between when the federal government says it's shipped doses and when those sites actually report back what they've done. So you've had some technological glitches. And in other cases, you have small local public health departments that are reading people's handwritings at the end of the day and manually entering that into reporting systems. And that is often done within 24 hours. But these are also agencies that are severely stretched financially and staff wise. So there can be delays built in there, too. So it's not always clear exactly what's been given where and when. One of the other big things behind all of this was federal officials overestimated how many doses should be set aside for people like in nursing homes and the staff there. And we were seeing a lot of those people refuse doses. So there was just an over allocation to that front. And then that just means it couldn't be pushed to other tiers in the rollout. 
Exactly. And you see states across the country now shifting those doses. So there, I'll be really clear, there were tens of thousands of doses in different states that were never actually shipped out. They were sort of allocated, you know, like on paper, but not physically shipped to those locations. But still, they were set aside for a purpose that they weren't actually needed for. And and so now you're having those shifted back to recipients that do want them and can use them. But all of that process takes time. And, you know, the idea behind that program was, you know, that old people are particularly vulnerable to this virus. Nursing homes have been the site of really deadly outbreaks and have taken a huge toll. So federal officials didn't want to find themselves in a position where there weren't enough doses for both the residents of those facilities and the staff that work there. But what they didn't quite factor in correctly was the hesitancy that they would encounter with staff not being as interested in getting vaccinated as you might expect. And also, you know, a number of elderly people have now moved back in with family or passed away during the pandemic. So the estimates greatly overstated the number of people that were actually in those facilities. What has the Biden administration said so far about how they're trying to fix these problems or or expedite the whole process now? You know, the Biden administration has said that they are setting up more vaccination sites, more mass vaccination sites in stadiums and convention centers. They're providing more transparency around what number of doses states will get and when, which can help on the forward planning process. And so you're seeing a couple of incremental steps that are meant to make this process from start to finish smoother. And, you know, one of the interesting things about all this is we have these vaccines that were developed in record time and then they were shipped out. The real challenge has been that last mile. And that's where you see both the federal government and states scrambling to get it right and improve it because people are so frustrated. You know, it's been very hard to make an appointment. You're constantly refreshing browsers. And especially in the early days of this, this is for older people and vulnerable people who might not be as tech savvy and able to check five websites all day. So you, you have this, this frustration and this scramble to get it right. Sarah Kraus, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Twenty percent of our free time was able to be devoted to work. But I realize that that isn't true of most folks, including many of my colleagues who are juggling a million things right now. They're juggling kids at home. They're juggling, you know, a spouse at home. Who knows what else? And for them, the time used during the pandemic has been a much more complicated situation. Joining us now is Andrew Van Dam, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Glad to be here. You wrote an interesting article for The Post talking about the result of everybody being cooped up at home. Obviously, the pandemic, the huge disruptor to everybody's lives. And a lot of people at one point stopped going to work. They stopped going out to their normal activities, restaurants, bars, just out socializing, all that. Everybody was stuck at home with their family members. And you were crunching the numbers on the dad and everything. And uh, a lot of people were turned to watching massive amounts of television. People worked more. You know, you'd think uh, people would be working less since they were home, but they actually devoted more attention to working at home. Obviously, parents devoted more time to taking care of their children. There's a lot in here. So, uh, Andrew, help us walk through some of this. Personally, I've been extremely lucky during the pandemic because I don't have any kids and my spouse and I can very easily work from home. So for us, it has been one of those things where we do see our productivity rise. It would be in line to say, as some researchers from Stanford and the Mexican Institute of Technology found, that we were able to spend about 40% of our free time was able to be devoted to work. But 
I realize that that isn't true of most folks, including many of my colleagues who are juggling a million things right now. They're juggling kids at home. They're juggling, you know, a spouse at home. Who knows what else? And for them, the time use during the pandemic has been a much more complicated situation. So that's what we try to dig into. People watch TV a ton already. Being at home, not much else to do, that kind of just rose even more. And you you would hear, you know, uh, in the middle of the pandemic, people making jokes like, hey, I watched all of Netflix already. So yeah. uh, that was kind of true. I, you know, people really increased their time in front of the television. There was a big difference between folks like me who don't have children at home. So, yes, we had a lot more time to work, spend on the television. And folks like many of my coworkers who have kids at home, and for parents, actually, their biggest activity wasn't television. It was childcare because schools are closed, kids right. are home. It's just an enormous burden on working parents. And the effect on the parents is uneven. You know, we always hear how the burden is much more on women, and this held true, too. Both parents increase their time watching children, but for women, it increased so much more. Oh, absolutely. And we don't have great federal measures of that right now. Like, normally, if I can get a little bit into the weeds, the federal government every month sends out time use diaries to a couple thousand people and tracks, you know, exactly how they spent their time. That would be super useful for this story. But unfortunately, during the pandemic, time use diaries, like many other things, were suspended. So we don't have data from those key pandemic months of April and May. But we can look at other things such as, well, a University of Illinois economist, Tatiana Derogina, and her colleagues surveyed about 20,000 academics and asked, hey, how much time have you spent on work? How does that compare to pre-pandemic? And of course, you know, are you a parent and how old are your kids? And they found that the amount of time that working women could spend if they had to take care of a young child. The amount of time that working women could spend working shrank by an hour and 45 minutes every single day. They lost an hour and 45 minutes of work time relative to a childless male such as myself. I don't know if we can emphasize the magnitude of these things enough. Normally, when the time use survey comes out every year, I lose my mind if it's a change of 15 minutes, of 10 minutes. And here we're talking about an hour and 45 minutes of work time just gone. The other thing, you know, obviously everybody's home life is not the same as you've been mentioning. You you know, you're you don't have kids, same thing with me, but there's couples that are at home and and with their families also, but the the burden is also different for people that are single. The isolation is different and so they were also affected differently. Well, think of it this way. When couples are together, time use data has shown that their overall happiness and life satisfaction rises with, you know, every extra hour that they're able to spend together during the day, which makes sense. But for singles, for every hour that they're alone during the day, their happiness, their life satisfaction falls. And now we're in a situation where singles have been in this situation of forced aloneness for almost a full year. That is going to have, you know, long running psychological effects and it's going to be compounded for say single parents who have been alone with children for a year with very little support. Andrew Van Dam, reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.